You're listening to Cloud9, where Bahaiteachings.org interviews artists from around the globe to learn about what inspires, uplifts, and motivates them to make a positive contribution to the world. My name is Shadi Talui Wallace. Masood Olafani is a multidisciplinary artist and actor with a primary focus on visual and sculptural art. He is known for weaving his own personal reality and strong passion for social justice into the subjects of his work. His sculptures and paintings highlight the harsh reality of systemic issues that affect minority groups and marginalized populations in America. In this episode of Cloud9, we'll learn about Masood's early beginnings, from his childhood in the South to his international sculptural exhibitions. You may have caught his talk on Bahaiteachings.org called Freeing Ourselves from the Stain of Racism. For God's loving rays have shed their light on your inmost being, and you have turned your face toward the threshold of your Lord. Masood is currently in his third and final year as artist-in-residence at the Atlanta Contemporary Art Center. He is the host of a new series called Retro Report and the host of our new podcast on Bahaiteachings.org titled America's Most Challenging Issue, which will debut in early 2019. Masood, a very warm welcome to Cloud9. Thank you, Shadding. Masood, let's start with your new podcast series, America's Most Challenging Issue. Could you tell us a little bit more about it and also where the name originated from? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, the phrase America's Most Challenging Issue is a common one known to Baha'is around the world. Uh, it is a phrase that uh, comes from the Baha'i writings. Um, uh, echoed by um, Shoghi Effendi, who was the guardian of the uh, Baha'i faith, uh, also Abdu'l-Baha and um, Baha'u'llah, of course, prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Um, it basically refers to uh, essentially the, um, the imprint of racism in the very fabric of American life um, and governance. And uh, the Baha'i writings encourage American Baha'is to... Uh, find creative ways under the guidance of the Universal House of Justice, the supreme governing body of the Baha'i faith, to rid America of the scourge of racism. It's America's most challenging issue because its roots are so deep and uh, also because it's so complex and uh, involves so many um, challenging and difficult histories. So, yeah, I think that's that's how I would describe it. Yeah. Thank you. So correct me if I'm wrong, but... I feel that racism and inequality have been an issue for centuries here in North yeah. America and around the world, but we're seeing more and mm -hmm. more movements these days that are forcing these issues to exist in higher levels of conversation and consciousness. Mm -hmm. What do you think are some of those conditions that have perpetuated this movement, and how do you feel that this podcast in particular will contribute to these conversations? Well, I mean, I think um, uh, xenophobia, fear of the other, um, I think the long history of marginalizing people based on um, phenotype, you know, color of the skin, um, being from another uh, part of the world, the culture group, what have you, um, is something that is just has a really long entrenched history uh, in the West. And of course, we see in today's society, in the political realm, um, within media, uh, and also in other venues, online venues, that people are really um, 
trying to uh, stir up these divisions and actually make them more entrenched, which of course is giving people who have, uh, who uh, may have had these feelings themselves, but were reluctant to share them for fear of being ostracized by the society, feel a bit more comfortable about sharing um, the pathology of racism uh, in a very um, action-oriented way. You know, as you have, as you have the rise of these negative forces that are, um, you know, really, really surging and um, trying to exert a greater influence in our society. There's also a rise on the other side of positive forces. So kind of, you know, science, the old classic phrase is for every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. And I think with these destructive forces of racism, bigotry, and injustice, there are also constructive forces that are happening at the same time of oneness, of unity, of the elimination of prejudice and bigotry and injustice. So it's it's really, on one hand, it's disheartening to see um, the pervasiveness of race, uh, of racism. Um, But then on the other hand, uh, it's also quite heartening to see people um, really engage uh, in a response to the rise of those negative forces. So I just think we're at a time in a really um, amazing time filled with uh, turmoil and peril, but also tremendous opportunity to construct something new that is more firmly rooted in uh, justice and equality. So it's a great time to be working in any field and um, apply your calling, uh, you know, to helping to, to solve this issue. So, yeah. So what subjects and mediums inspire you as an artist and make their way into your work as a visual artist? <laughs> Gosh, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, unfortunately in one, on one sense, I'm not one of these artists that works in one medium, like consistently. I kind of work all over the place. So my work can involve something as rudimentary as like walking down the street and finding an object on the ground that is just really compelling and beautiful to me. And just bringing it back to my studio and letting it, letting it live in space until it begins to talk to me and lets me know what it wants to become. So an openness to kind of like chance is, I think, really important. But then also my work involves things like video and uh, performance and, um, you know, uh, built sculptural form and a lot of drawing. Um, so all of these things, usually what happens for me is the idea presents itself. And then I find a way to communicate the idea. So the medium follows as a result of what I think is the best way to communicate the idea. Can you share some examples of the stories behind your work and perhaps some of the research that you've undergone to accurately portray your subjects? Sure. Well, one project I think is really, um, um, really um, occupying a lot of my attention right now is a project called Block the Global Healing Project, which really, uh, the way that project developed really exemplifies kind of this disciplinary approach that I have to uh, the practice of art. I uh, initially worked as the on-air host for a show produced by uh, Georgia Public Broadcasting called uh, Shimmer on the March 37 Weeks, which basically chronicled uh, the period of the Civil War when William Tecumseh Sherman marched his Union Army through the state of Georgia. Uh, and I went to the premiere of this documentary, um, you know, uh, television series uh, in which I was the host. And uh, they, once they did the editing, I saw at the end of the film, they showed areas of Atlanta during the time of the Civil War 
and then showed you that present location as it exists today. So they showed uh, a place called Five Points Marta Station, which is the central transportation hub for the city of Atlanta. It's where all the trains meet, north, south, east, and west. Turns out that that used to be a thriving slave market. And there's no uh, public marker or indicator that that was the history of that space. So I was um, really uh, riveted, moved by that, uh, by the absence of, of, um, of memory, by erasure of memory. And this project, Block the Global Healing Project, developed um, as a result of the desire to want to place a permanent site-specific installation in that location that would memorialize the people that were sold uh, in the auction house that once existed on those grounds. Block the Global Healing Project uh, really was my response to not only the, the absence of um, marking that forgotten history in Atlanta, but also the idea that many of these sites exist throughout the United States and also around the world, any place that was directly had ties to the slave trade. So what I wanted to do was create a performance uh, that uh, involves film, live performance, um, uh, theatrical performance, and, uh, and solo singing. Um, and the film would transition from location to location around across the United States and around the globe. And then um, documentary research, uh, sales receipts, ship manifest, um, bank receipts, all these types of things, paintings, engravings, and old photographs would be floated in and out of the moving um, uh, site-specific uh, film footage of a particular location. Uh, these, uh, these images, as they float in and out, form like a ghostly registry or imprint of the history that existed in these spaces before. So uh, that's something that I'm working a lot working on now. Um, um, God willing, I'll be, uh, I, I've gotten funded to go to Africa in October. So I'll be in um, Benin, Ghana, and Senegal. And I also got funding to go to Brazil, to Bahia, Brazil. Uh, all of these locations are significant because uh, the imprint of the slave trade was so prevalent in these spaces. And then, of course, there's locations throughout the United States where sites exist that have not been, that have lost and forgotten. Um, but the oral history of those locations is passed down from generation to generation. So people know, but there's also, because there's no visible marker, people don't know, can't discover that history unless somebody tells them. So, yeah. So that's yeah. one. It's a big one. It's a wow. big one I'm working on. Yeah. A huge one, but yeah. I'm sure a huge honor as well. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it's, um, for me, the work has to have some kind of resonant meaning. I have to be able to um, kind of, I have to, first of all, art for me has to have two essential qualities. The artist, you have to be fearless, but you also have to be ethical. And uh, I, I don't, I feel like my practice uh, is really operating um, you know, on, in the proper, in the proper, um, with the proper motivation when both of those qualities are expressed in my practice. So the fearlessness to confront, um, challenging issues, but also the ethical imperative, uh, that makes me consider my audience, how the work is going to impact the audience, um, and how, what I set forth into the world can help, um, inspire some type of change or deeper reflection in the spectator. Now let's talk about your background and family history. I know mm -hmm. that you weren't always known as Masood Olifani. 
Mm-hmm. And this is a name you adopted for yourself more recently. Mm-hmm. Who were you before and how did the name change influence how you see yourself today? Uh, well, I, was, I was born in Los Angeles, California in 1969. Uh, my birth name was Michael. My last name was Bolds. That was my father's name, B-O-L-D-S. Um, we, there was an earthquake in the early 70s that um, precipitated a move to the East Coast, to New York, um, which is where I spent a lot of my early years. And, um, and then uh, did some moving around in Florida, Dallas, Texas, New Orleans, Louisiana, um, Atlanta, Georgia, and then back up to New Jersey um, when I went to high school. Um, in about 2000, I read a book called uh, The Slave Trade by an English scholar named Hugh Thomas and discovered uh, in one of the chapters that my surname, Bolds, B-O-L-D-S, was derived from a certain James Bold, B-O-L-D, who was a slave ship captain from Liverpool, England. Quite oftentimes what you'll see in African-American names when there's an S put onto a root surname like Sims, um, like um, yeah, Bolds, um, others, the S indicates slave. So uh, that would be a way to indicate that this person is property of. So both the Bolds were property of Mr. Bold. So I, I something in me felt like I needed to make a change. Like I didn't, um, I didn't want to uh, adopt something that I felt so deeply, I didn't want to keep something I felt so deeply conflicted about. So I just started doing some research on uh, different names, um, African-inspired names, um, uh, names from North Africa, West Africa, and settled on Masood Olufani. Masood, of course, is uh, more North African, um, Middle Eastern, if you will. Um, there are variations on the spelling, mine, M-A-S-U-D. Um, some people spell it M-A-S-O-U-D. Uh, it means fortunate or lucky. Then Olufani, um, Olu is the uh, root of Olufani, and that means of God. And then finally, it was just a little flush I threw on. doesn't really mean anything at all. But I guess together, taken together, it's fortunate of God. So, yeah. And Olufani, or Olu, is Yoruba. So we're talking Nigeria. It just sounded right to me. Uh, so that's why I chose it. Um, cool. So, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So you've already touched yeah. a bit on your, uh, your journey as a child. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. a bit of your early years, but could you expand mm-hmm. more about where you grew up and how mm-hmm. creativity played a role in your early life? Well, I started drawing when I was living in Miami. I must have been about uh, five. I think I was five when I first started drawing, four or five. And my mother noticed that I had a just a, um, a natural ability for it. And um, my mother was a very creative and artistic person, um, an amateur writer, um, an interior decorator. Um, she had been a model back in the uh, 60s and had done some traveling. So she had this really like kind of, you know, uh, global, um, how should I say, uh, I don't know, continental type of uh, woman with multiple interests. So uh, she was very excited that I was a creative kid. Um, it wasn't something that was a difficult concept for her to get her mind around. So she started bringing me paper home to the office where she worked and pencils, which fed my creativity. I just kept drawing. 
And my parents divorced when I was about seven and my father stayed in Florida. My mother moved back to New York. So I would split time between my mother in New York and my father in Florida. And my mother, when I would go to New York, my mother, my favorite thing to do on Saturdays was to go into the city with her because we live on Roosevelt Island, which is this weird kind of like in between place between Brooklyn and New York. And you got to take this tram car across the river to get into the city. So it's pretty, pretty wild used to be an old lunatic asylum uh, where their most famous residents were Mae West and Billie Holiday. So uh, she would, we would go into the city and she would take me to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, I mean, the Met- yeah, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, um, Studio Museum of Harlem. So she really saw something in me and she nurtured that. She got me books on Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. So I just, I just stuck with it. I just stuck with it and um, started getting some art instruction in school. Wound up going to, um, I wound up, uh, because of circumstance, I went to four different high schools. And uh, three of those were art schools. One in Dallas, Texas, one in New Orleans, and one in Newark, New Jersey, where I graduated. And then from there, I went to Parsons School of Design in New York City, transferred to Morehouse College, um, and then uh, started a master's at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, and then finished at... Um, Savannah College of Design. So So just to bring our listeners up to speed, uh, you're the host of a new Baha'i Teachings podcast series Mm -hmm. called America's Most Challenging Issue, as well as your work with NPR. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. inspired by your own personal experiences and the Baha'i perspective on race unity. You Mm -hmm. spent your youth attending various art schools before attending Morehouse College, where you discovered Mm -hmm. your calling as a sculptural artist. This Mm -hmm. is also around the same time that you discovered the Baha'i faith, while yeah. you were on your way to becoming an Episcopalian priest? How yeah, does that, that was happen? A plan. <laughs> I don't know. Could you walk I, us through uh, that you know, spiritual life, journey? <laughs> life is funny, man. I mean, I, I think I had, I had, you know, usually when people begin deep, intensive spiritual journeys, it's precipitated by some, um, like, major life experience, you know? So I, th- I think what happened is I had an intense breakup uh, in college in, like, my freshman or sophomore year in college. And it, it, you know, I just felt like I needed from that experience, which, you know, when you're that age, you feel like everything is anything that happens that's difficult and challenged, like the end of the world. Right. So, uh, but it was intense and I went through a lot of pain and it was a growing experience. And, um, I just felt like I needed to realign some things and find something that was more permanent, um, and less fleeting. Um, so that's when I started doing these, this intense, uh, search. Now I, I didn't grow up with my feet firmly planted in any particular religious tradition. I went to the, I was in the nation of Islam as a child, with my father. Um, I remember going to a Baptist church, to a Lutheran church. Um, I went to a Catholic school for a while. So I had all of these kind of experiences. So when I decided to go on that search, I was open to reading kind of like anything I can get my hands on that dealt with the truth. Um, the pursuit of truth and um, spiritual reality. So I was reading everything, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Bible, the Old and New Testament. Um, I mean, anything I can get my hands on that I felt uh, was speaking to my soul. I was seeing a woman, a young woman at uh, Spelman College uh, as a, a junior in Morehouse. She was a senior. She was an incredible actress, really talented. And... Um, she had a friend, a dear friend, uh, on campus who happened to be a Baha'i. Now, at this point, I'd never heard of the Baha'i faith, ever heard of the Baha'i faith. Never. Never came across it in all of my reading, ever. And so I'm, she, um, 
you know, I, I, I thought I was going to be Episcopalian priest because I had been going to um, an Episcopalian church for a while and really liked the, the, the energy and the vibe. And, and I just seemed like there was nothing, uh, there was nothing greater than giving one's life to God, you know? So it seemed to me, without knowing what the Baha'i faith was or, 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 or faith tradition outside of the context of those that I already experienced, I should just choose one of those. So, um, so I settled on being Episcopalian priest. And um, during that time, as I was starting baby steps towards that process, my girlfriend at the time introduced me to this woman uh, who's this amazing, um, you know, uh, Baha'i elder here in the community of Atlanta. Um, a lot of Baha'is, a lot of Baha'is around the country would know uh, Jamila Kennedy, but she's an extraordinary soul. Uh, and she introduced me to the Baha'i faith and uh, she gave me a prayer book. It's funny how God works things out. My birthday was coming up and she said, and she said, I've got something for you. And she said, this is the most precious thing that I have in my life that I can give you. I could give you something material, but this will feed your soul. And so she gave me the prayer book and I was, I, I think initially I was taken aback. I was like, what is this Baha'i stuff? And who is Baha'u? Baha, how do you say his name? You know, <laughs> how do you say Baha'u'llah's name? You know, uh, Baha'u'llah, of course, is the prophet founder of the faith. And um, I began a tentative engagement with the writings of Baha'u'llah. And the prayers were so ex exquisitely rendered and so beautiful and so moving at the deepest part of my soul that I recognized the same feelings I was having uh, through my engagement with the writings of Baha'u'llah with the same things I was having when I read the Beatitudes uh, in the Bible, when I read um, the 99 names of Allah in the Quran, when I read, um, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, the story of, uh, you know, of the Buddha, of, I mean, it was the same feeling. So there was, there was this chord, right? This melody that was consistent. And I knew if I could find, if that melody was there, there was truth, truth resided there. So then I started a deeper search and investigation of the writings over time um, through interaction with some of the Baha'is and just through my own um, gradual uh, investigation and also wearing my resistance down. Because every time, one of the things that I thought I would do is prove the Baha'is wrong, you guys are crazy. I mean, you had a wall up. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people have had that experience, yeah. you know, especially if you've never heard of something before. And Scary. of course, what the, yeah, it is. And of course, what that does, it just, that just uh, seals the deal. It's just a matter of time. Because, uh, you know, if you're a sincere person, if, if you are, have just a shred of sincerity in your search, you have to acknowledge the truth no matter where you find it. And, um, and you have to let go of the ego. So, um, I, I went out to prove something wrong and I was proven wrong. And I had to, um, I had to uh, integrate that new reality into my being. So, yeah. And how did your parents feel when you became a Baha'i? You know, they, they, my parents were so kind of all over the place when it came to relig religious expression. I don't think they really batted an eye. Um, my mother declared a few years after I did, um, so she, when she transcended, when she can, uh, made her transition to the next world uh, in 2007, she passed on as a bi. Um, my father is learning a lot about the faith through our relationship. Although, you know, you got to be very careful about um, sharing the faith um, with those that know you the best because they know you in a different context. And, uh, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's difficult to accept that your children might have discovered something 
that you haven't, and it actually might be true and valid. So I don't really do a lot of like, um, I don't bring up the faith really uh, a lot with them. I try to demonstrate through my actions. And, um, and then occasionally when I have an opportunity, I'll drop a nugget in there and then just, just leave it, you know, and let it, let it sit. So, <laughs> yeah. Baha'u'llah shares when anyone occupieth himself in a craft or trade, mm-hmm. such occupation itself mm-hmm. is regarded in the estimation of God as an act of worship. Do you feel that your creativity is a form of worship? And how have the Baha'i teachings further influenced your approach to creativity and the creative process? Yeah, I think think, uh, that statement uh, just validated um, the practice of art for me, the professional practice of art. Um, This is the first revelation that does, that, that, that speaks to so many, many truths, so many realities that previous revelations have not spoken to. And an example is the importance of the arts and how the arts are a service to humanity, how music can lift the soul. It's like a ladder. It can elevate the soul. Um, and Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'lláh, um, when he talks, when he, his statement about, um, he was speaking to an artist, uh, a painter, um, a woman painter at this point, and he said, it brings great joy to my heart. Thou spendest time on thine art because in this day, Art is accounted as worship. And so that's just valid. I mean, it's, you know, if you've got the central figures of the faith saying that what you do is not only valuable, but occupies a special place in this cycle of revelation, I don't, I don't care what people, anybody else says. They can say, oh, that's just a hobby. You know, you're never going to make any money. You're going to die poor. I don't care. The writings validate the practice of art. And that's all I need. Um, and that gives me the impetus to continue the work, to continue the engagement, to continue the questions, to continue the labor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that process is incredibly uh, validating with me. The notion that work, the practice of one's occupation can be and is worship when it is done in the spirit of service is a profound truth that I think um, makes us think very differently about what it is that we choose to do with our lives. Integrity is such an important part of um, anything that we do. Uh, In the arts, it's so critical because false note, be it in music or on stage in front of the camera, um, a a work of art that uh, is intended to mean one thing, but because of the way it's constructed is indicating something else, which was not the artist's intention. Those false notes can um, undermine the message, you know, or the truth of what you're trying to communicate. So that notion of uh, the Baha'i writings has a very powerful quote that says, truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. So um, in in essence, all the other virtues, and when we say virtues, uh, the virtues of the living God, things like uh, justice, equanimity, peace, compassion, love, courage, all of those other virtues are built on the foundation of truth. So I approach what I do as an artist from a standpoint of trying to communicate some essential truth of the human experience. And in whatever iteration that um, my practice uh, manifests itself, that is the starting point. That's the starting point. Um, And, uh, you know, and and the the whole idea that, uh, you know, of the arts having this kind of integral part of the forward advancement of civilization that it has a definite role to play in terms of how it 
can move the spirit, can get people to think deeper about the reality of things, and can communicate higher truths and ennoble um, the, 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 the human being. Uh, that's a, a real profound calling to aspire to. So those teachings I find particularly inspiring to my practice. And I try to keep those things in mind and in my heart as I'm working in whatever discipline that I'm working in. I feel like you've been exploring those those attributes your whole life, but it's like the Baha'i faith kind of gave you a, a spiritual language or a framework to kind of uh, yeah. create a, a place for that dialogue. That's your, such a great eye. point, um, Shadi. That's such a great point because I think you're right on point about that. I think there was all there was intimation in me to move in that direction, but you're absolutely right. Uh, the teachings Baha'u'llah, or the writings of Baha'u'llah, that the the incredible poetry of his writings, um, and then the uh, the just the the, the, the writings of Abdul Baha, the um, center of, of Baha'u'llah's covenant, his son and the head of the faith, uh, Baha'u'llah Pass, his writings, which also have this element of poetry, but speak in a more, I would say, kind of um, down-to-earth or practical way towards human uh, human beings' interaction in it, in their day-to-day lives. And then, of course, you have Yogi Effendi, the grandson of Abdu'l-Baha, who uh, speaks in these incredible poetic, um, but really honest, cutting-to-the-point kind of language um, that is so profound and so electrifying. So all of that, all that wealth of information that um, talks about the nature of the soul and how human beings are meant to interact with with each other, how we're meant to regard one another, um, that gave me a framework and a language, a way of speaking about things that I, I didn't really have a way of speaking about them before. So... The thing about the Baha'i writings, which is so profound to me, is that I can read one thing one day, and then I can take a break, come back to the same writing maybe, I don't know, four or five days later or a week later, and discover something completely new that I didn't get the first time. It's like a flower, like the petals on a, on a rose. You pull one off, and then you pull another and you pull another, and you pull another, pull another, and you find all the beauty just continues to reveal and unfold itself. And uh, that for me is um, astonishing. I don't know what other word to, to say about it. Um, I love that. I yeah, love that analogy of a that, flower. I've never heard that before. Yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving, they say. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to pull, a, pull away the petals to get to the yeah. core. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Now reflecting on on your practice as an artist in the yeah. greater artist community of, of Atlanta, mm-hmm. perhaps, or, or mm-hmm. the United States, what have your experiences mm-hmm. been like as a Baha'i in the art and social justice world? And are mm-hmm. people open to hearing the sources of your inspiration? And what are some of the conversations in the discourse look like? Yeah, you know, I, I always try to... Um, <clears throat> I try to be really conscious about when I'm sharing the faith with the larger community in the context of my professional practice, um, intentional. So um, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, if you go to my website, of course, it says there that I am a Baha'i. But I try to always lead with, um, with character, with behavior, and then allow that to create an opening where somebody will invariably ask, it happens all the time, 
I have, you know, I'm teaching a class now, uh, my first um, college course uh, here at Georgia State. And I've had students ask me, yo, what, it, what is it that you're doing? What's your spiritual practice that you're doing? One young man said that he feels like I have a really balanced masculinity, which I thought was a profound statement. I never heard that before, a balanced masculinity. And he, and he wanted to know, what is your spiritual practice? So had I, had he caught me on a bad day, as I have some of those, he might not have asked, <laughs> but he caught me on a good day. And, uh, and fortunately that created a, 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 a door where I could share just a little bit. So now he's heard about the Baha'i faith and he knows. So he can't ever go into the world now and say, if somebody, if he meets somebody else and they say, yeah, I'm a Baha'i. Oh, I knew a Baha'i. My professor was a Baha'i. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I, you know, the, I try to seek those opportunities, lead with character, lead with my actions and then allow that to be, uh, to provide a means. Um, the other thing is there are some, um, the, 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 the um, ethics, the morality uh, of the Baha'i faith is a powerful buttress between the artist and the corrosive um, effects that can take place as a result of an engagement with the um, machine, the art world, which operates quite often on ego, which operates on extreme competitiveness, um, which operates on um, things that we have to be on guard um, for. And you have to just remember, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. It ain't about you. You got <laughs> the gift. You've been, you know, the gift is on to you, but you ain't the source. Yeah. And don't ever, don't ever get it twisted. <laughs> you know? So I try to remind myself of that, that uh, I really am, um, I'm, I'm blessed to, however long I'm on this earth, to be, uh, for lack of a better word, um, and perhaps it sounds a bit cliche, but I think it's true, um, a handheld tool uh, in the grasp of the maker. And um, my goal is always to allow myself to be used, just to be used. I just want to be useful. That's all. Mm. That's all. It's almost like you're creating your work through your own experience, Mm -hmm. but you're letting others develop their own experience and relationship with it and their own narrative. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's quite quite a detached process for an yeah. artist. Well, it's it's. Uh, I didn't always used to be that way when I was younger and uh, a bit less sure about um, the nuances uh, and the subtleties of, um, of, of, of what an artist sends into the world and how that can be even more expansive than being didactic and being very specific of what you present. I had to learn that. And um, so now what I do is try to respect the intelligence of the viewer and the nobility of their own soul and the ability of that viewer, no matter what background they come from, educated, non-educated, um, PhD, no D, doesn't matter, to come in this space, engage with the work and arrive at draw their own conclusions. And in that sense, the artwork becomes collaborative. It's always collaborative. You know, um, you might do the work, but then the other end, at the other, at the end of that spectrum, at the end of that, that um, 
from point where you start at point A and you get to point B, you finish the work, complete the work, then the viewer grafts their own meaning onto what you've created. And that's the collaborative dimension that takes place between the artist, the maker, and the spectator, the viewer. They're both critical processes that have to be respected. Uh, when it comes to the topic of race and social justice, though, I find that yeah. there are many voices <clears throat> out there talking about America's most challenging issue. So yeah. what sets your conversation apart from others out there? And what do you hope listeners will glean from tuning in? And what I find is, and I've been, in, I've been, uh, had some engagement with uh, organizations that, um, that, that, operate outside of the context of, um, of faith, right? Or outside of the context of, um, mm -hmm. you know, of religious teaching. And yeah. what I find is, is that those, those um, endeavors um, spring from a sincere desire to want to move the world forward and get past these issues. But what I also find is that you can take every human being in the world, put together in one room, a very large room, ask them the same question, their, their impression about a certain thing, and you would get a different response probably from every single person. So that variance of opinion um, makes it very difficult for people to develop a cohesive strategy to address the ills of society. One group will say that I've got the way. Another group will say, well, you're not radical enough. Another group will say too radical. Another group will say, well, you, you should rely more on the court system. Another group will say, well, you should rely more on boots on the ground or whatever. What I love about the clarity of the, 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 the Baha'i faith when it comes to these issues is just that it's clarity, it's consistency, it's um, clear delineation of truth and reality, it's unmovable, you know? And I think that is so assuring that I don't have to reinvent the wheel, that I don't have to try and come up with something from Masood to solve the issues of the world, because Masood is one person. I have a very limited spectrum of what I take in, right? Um, so my perspective on how to solve issues, even off of my block is skewed. <laughs> You know, um, because I can't see all things from a Baha'i perspective, um, word of God, the teachings of 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 the manifestations, the prophets of God. Um, and particularly in this day, the uh, teachings of Baha'u'llah are essential because they're invested with the dimension of authority. And that authority descends from God, comes through the manifestation, and then it is given to the world. So. The, 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 the profound, the kind of transformative quality of the teachings of the manifestation of God gives the, the way that the followers of, of, of the Baha'i teachings in this revelation, because I'm a Baha'i, engage with these um, issues with a different level of insight and innovation that comes not from the Baha'is, but comes from the authority of the manifestation of God, Baha'u'llah, which derives from God. And that's the thing. So that, that, that to me is, is, is what is, um, sets, sets it apart from all of the other movements that uh, aren't invested with that kind right. of authority. Right, right, of course. Yeah. So 
Who are some of the people that you'll be interviewing on your podcast, America's Most Challenging Issue? Well, we're, we're trying to get uh, my dear uh, big brother, uh, Van Gilmer, to be our first guest. So no, that brother's big time. So we got to talk to his people and, you know, got to schedule and all that because he's jumping from here to here. Uh, he's an amazing uh, vocalist and also a choral arranger who's done some consistent transformative work um, in regards to the issue of race. Um, through the using the uh, the teachings uh, and the tools uh, set forth by the Universal House of Justice, uh, we're also trying to get uh, people like uh, um, Camille Locke, uh, another extraordinary, the daughter of uh, Kevin Locke, who doing some extraordinary work uh, on Native reservations. Um, she happens to be uh, a member of the Lepra Nation, uh, and she's just a really profoundly um, just a, a beautiful soul but with a lot of courage and conviction. Um, the, I mean, there's, the, the, and the list goes on. We Joy DeGruy, her daughter, uh, you know, um, it goes on and on. It's, it's, it's expansive. So th- those are some of the names that we're looking at to, to begin the podcast. And um, we're just going to continue to um, really hopefully try to expose some of the work that some of these, some of the people in the community, in the Baha'i world community, in the, in the American Black community are doing some known, some not so known that is really advancing um, uh, this notion of the oneness of mankind forward. So, yeah. Well, I feel like these these conversations will, will give us hope, but also provide us a framework or to make us mm-hmm. really think critically about how we're also contributing to the conversation through action, which is mm-hmm. really exciting. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. Yeah, that's the goal. That's the goal. I hope so. No, I'm definitely sure this will have an impact. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Masood, we've come to the end of our episode of Cloud Nine, but I want to thank you so much for oh, your time man, today. Awesome. Thanks, Shadi. You're tackling one of the most challenging issues and conversations of our time, and we're so excited to tune into your new podcast series, America's Most Challenging Issue, right here on BahaiTeachings.org. Thank you, Shadi. Wish you all the best, and I also look forward to following along your creative pursuits in the community. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Shadi. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Cloud9. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to check out BahaiTeachings.org where you can find more Baha'i-inspired podcasts, videos, and articles.